Amen. Uh, good morning. How are you guys doing surviving with your kids being home? I don't know about you, it's winter break, so we have ours home Friday, Monday, and Tuesday. It's such a joy that they get like 265 days off of school a year around here, uh, trying to figure out what to do with them. It's fun. Hey, if you have a Bible, meet me over in Acts chapter 5. We are continuing through our series this year in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 12 today, all right? You may not know this, but one of my family traditions is every year after our Christmas services, we, um, we get up on Christmas Day, we have Christmas together, and then on the 26th, we drive down to Florida to go visit my family and spend a week down there. Well, this year was, is quite chaotic. We, we decided to drive through the night. Um, I don't know why, one of the worst decisions we ever made, but we drove through the night and we got down there. Oh, I think we thought our kids would sleep. Yeah, that didn't happen. All right, it was just miserable the whole night. Well, we get down there and then on the 27th, I got back on an airplane and flew to San Antonio, Texas to do a funeral or be a part of a funeral for somebody at our church. Uh, one of the sweetest moments in time, though, is whenever, whenever you get to sit down with a family as they're reminiscing over a family member who had just passed away. So I'm, I'm sitting down at the, the kitchen table with this family in San Antonio, and my buddy looks at me and he says, man, my dad always wanted to go see the new Cowboys Stadium. Uh, he's a huge Cowboys fan. He, his health wasn't great. So we're trying to figure out how to make this happen. And he says, one day, I just decided I'm going to get online. I found an email address for Jerry Jones. And I sent him an email and let him know that my dad's dream was to go see the Cowboys Stadium and go to a game. Well, I didn't think much of it until a week later, I get a phone call from Jerry Jones's personal assistant. And she says, Mr. Jones was moved by your email and wants to invite you and your dad to any Cowboys game you want. Just let me know which one, and there'll be two tickets waiting for you at will call. Y'all, that's the coolest story ever. Come on. How many of us have not because we ask not? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how many things you miss out on because you simply aren't willing to ask? Now, for most of you, it's not this crazy big ask, and, and we know the difference, right? We've all been around the person who over-asks, and you're like, oh my gosh, if you ask me to do one more thing for you. We're not talking about that. But for most of us, most of us, we aren't willing to ask for anything. You're dying of COVID, and you won't ask somebody for a meal. Right? You, you know what I'm saying? Like your whole house is throwing up and somebody's like, hey, can I bring you over dinner tonight? Nah, we got this. No, you don't. And the reality is, is because you're not willing to ask, many people miss out on those blessings. How many of you feel like maybe you've missed out on opportunities at work? Because, man, you were just too afraid to step up and make the ask. Like, like you were struggling and you're struggling to, to figure out how to deal with the situation at work, maybe. And you know that things aren't going right. You know that your boss is cutting corners. But, but you're, you're too afraid to step up. Some of you, if you're over the age of 30, understand that back in the day, you couldn't just swipe right. You had to go make the ask, right? You had to shoot your shot. And if you're anything like me, listen to me. I can tell you from experience, they say no 42 times. But eventually, you wear them down. <laughs> Why do you think I'm married? You know, there's some point in time in all of our lives where we got to be bold enough to ask, to, to make requests for whatever those things may be. All of us have the story. 
All of us are shaped. We're either shaped by fear or we're shaped by boldness. Like, I don't know if you think this or not, but my fear is, is that many of us are missing out because we're just too afraid to ask because culture has even made you feel like if you step out at all, there's a fear of being canceled or there's a fear of what somebody might think about you. What I want to show you today is that the, the thing that made the church in Acts so powerful was not their intellect. It wasn't their skills. If you know anything about the apostles, they were the land of misfit toys. Go back. If you go back to how Jesus picked the 12 apostles, okay, this is so fascinating. Every single boy wanted to grow up and they wanted to be a rabbi. So they would go to rabbinical school. They would learn the Old Testament. They would literally memorize it. And the best of the best would be called Talmudids. They would follow a rabbi. Well, guess what? If you didn't get picked, you went back to your dad's job. What do you think Peter and all of them did? They didn't get picked. They weren't smart enough. Jesus was a rabbi. He came and picked the ones that nobody wanted. They weren't, it wasn't their intellect. It was their boldness. It was their boldness that made the early church so different. You see, the early church, they had an encounter with the living God. And because they had an encounter with the living God that changed the way that they lived, just before this all happened, you see that Jesus walked through a wall and told Thomas, who was doubting him, hey, bro, if you don't believe that I am who I said that I am, why don't you put your fingers in my side? Why don't you feel the scars? That experience changed them. They understood who they were dealing with. They understood that the same God who put on flesh, lived their perfect life, died their death and rose from the dead. If he really is who he said that he is, then he's really going to do what he said that he's going to do. And which means that you really need to do what he told you to do. And what he did is he told you to go make disciples. So they went. They went and they started off in Jerusalem and it was just 12 guys. 11 guys, and they picked a new apostle to join them, 12 guys up in an upper room. And within just a couple weeks, by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, the historians will tell you 10% of Jerusalem is now following Jesus. And within 100 years, one third of the entire Roman empire would be following Jesus. Y'all, this movement of God became unstoppable. And it wasn't because of anything that they did with their intellect. It was simply because they obeyed and they were bold enough to do what God told them to do. The apostles had become convinced that Jesus really was who he said that he was. And because of that, they were really willing to do what he said to do. What would it look like? What would it look like for us to have a move of the Spirit of God like they did? You know what it'd do? What it'd take? Boldness. The, the, the ability to make the request, to ask, to do, to take God at his word. Write this down. Here's what the church was. The church isn't an institution. The church is a movement built around a message that changed the world. And the quicker we get our minds around that, that the most powerful thing on the planet is not a building, but it's a group of people who really believe who Jesus is, and they're willing to do what he told them to do, we will change the world too. So pick up the story with me in chapter 5, verse 12. Here's what it says. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in, Simon, in Solomon's portico. One of the ways that God validated the message and the claims that the early church had was through signs and wonders. If you recall, Peter, he had just healed a paralyzed man, and then the Sanhedrin, this group of Sadducees, they didn't really like it. But something started happening when these signs and wonders are taking place. So you have a paralyzed man that's healed. And then you have these guys who tell you not to preach, but they do it anyway. And then if you remember last week, maybe the most difficult miracle that ever happened in the early church is two people dropped dead for lying in church. 
Verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them. I wonder why. <laughs> right? But, this is key, the people held them in high esteem. Something was happening in Jerusalem. The church was beginning to develop a reputation. People knew that this was a place of real healing and power. They knew that something was going on here, and yet they also knew that this church was a place that you didn't mess with. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that if the church today is going to recapture the power to actually make a change in the world, we have to recapture what they had. And did you see what they had? They had a reputation. They were held in high esteem. The church needs to be the central point of healing in the community. Let me just ask you, when somebody is in trouble in our community, is the first place they go is to the church, right? Seriously. What would it look like if our community looked around us and they're like, dude, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but here's what I know is anytime anything's wrong, just go to city church because they'll take care of you. Imagine if that was the reputation that we had or when your kids were falling apart and your marriage is struggling, your first thought is, I need to go find somebody in my church because that's the place of healing. And everybody that I know that has gone there and experienced the living God has come away changed and for the better. Imagine if that's what leaders in our community thought. See, in order for the church to gain the power, to gain the power in the community, the leaders have to begin to have a reputation of being held in high regard. If I'm honest with you, I dread when people ask me what I do for a living. Y'all, 10 years ago, if somebody asked me, what do you do for a living? And I told them I was a pastor. There was such esteem and regard. Today, It's like there's disgust and distrust. And let me just be honest with you. Some of that's for good reason. Y'all, you go on Instagram, and preachers got preacher sneakers accounts, and they're making more money than they know what to do with, and and there's a disconnect between what they say and what they do, and there's more scandals going on in the church today than I can ever recall. And maybe because there's more access, I don't know. But the reality is it's quite a shame. And I'm ashamed of it, that, that, the, that our reputation is on the line. I'm just to be honest with you, man. Like, we need to be known as the people of the highest regard and highest reputation. That doesn't mean we need to be perfect, but people need to look at me and my family, and they need to look at the other, other leaders in this church in our community and be like, I trust those people because their lives and their message match. Now, let me just be honest with you, too. That's what they need to see in you. Let me give you three things that I think the church needs to do to regain its reputation. Okay, write these down. Number one, I think we need to serve sacrificially. One of the marks of the church has always been how it has loved the most vulnerable in society. Right, we never meant to be a seminary for the powerful. We're meant to be a hospital for the broken. Like, I know that we do pretty intellectual sermons here, but let me just be honest with you. If you're just coming here to write and take down notes and you never lift up your head to worship, then you're missing the point. Think about what James says. Pure religion is this, those who take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. Now, people make a big deal about what all that means, but let me tell you what it really means. Orphans and widows in their distress can't give you anything in return. It's serving people that have nothing to offer you back, right? You see the motive there? What if that's what the church was known for? We're the people that serve, but there's no strings attached. It doesn't really matter what you bring to the table, 
What we're doing is we're giving sacrificially. That's what builds a reputation. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, think of others and regard them more highly than yourself. I told this to a group of pastors last night I was speaking to, and I've told you this before. Humility in the Bible is very, 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 very rarely a noun. It's almost exclusively a verb. You're not a humble person. You humble yourself. Okay, that's what you do. You serve, and as you serve and you humble yourself to serve, what ends up happening is you build the reputation of the church. I'm telling you, when we live this way, society will view you as strangely different, and they will keep you in high regard. Here's number two. We need to unhitch ourselves from politics. Y'all, this is a big deal. The church has either become hyper-Trumpian or it's become super-woke. And both of those extremes are horrible. I've told you this before. When the church marries culture and they have a baby, you don't get more church. You get more culture. So whenever churches decide we're going to hang up the American flag in here and give our allegiance to the national anthem, or we're going to be just like pro-everything, we're going to hang up the rainbow flag, both of those extremes don't get you more church. They get you more culture. And it's the nastiest of culture. And both of those extremes make us lose the one thing that we have to speak back into culture. The one thing we have to speak back into culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we have. We tell people that our kingdom is not of this world, that we, we worship a God who is better than all of those things. And our theology has power when it is mixed with practice. When we do both of those things together, we serve graciously and we hold to conviction of God's word without apology, powerful things happen. When I was working at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, um, we, we had off-duty officers that would always do traffic. And one day, uh, one of these officers came up to me and she says, hey, I know what kind of church you are. Me and my girlfriend want to start coming. Is that okay? I'm like, yeah, sure. So she and her girlfriend starts coming to the church. And a couple weeks later, she asks, hey, can I, can I meet with you? All right. She sits me down. And she's like, Billy, I'm so angry. I'm like, I, I saw that coming. Um, and I don't know what to do. I'm like, okay, tell me about it. She says, I know what you feel about what my lifestyle is. And every single time that I show up, you guys just love me like crazy. And you, and you teach the Bible. And there's this, there's this tension going on in my life that I want to hate you and I can't. That there's just something here that keeps drawing me back and I don't know what it is. And all I want to do is I want to be mad at you because I know that you believe what I'm doing is sinful. And yet I'm so attracted to this message that I just want to keep coming. I'm like, that's the power of the gospel. Theology and practice when done well is attractive. Like we've got to stop giving ourselves into political persuasion and just stick to the Bible. If you will, it will hit all the cultural problems. I promise you that. Just teach the Bible. Here's number three. We need to build a personal persona that outpaces our public um, platform. You know, the, 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 the apostles were gaining a reputation for being people of high integrity. They were the same people in private as they were in public, and that mattered. 
You know, I've told you this. Um, The word hypocrisy in the Bible literally means to to take off your mask and to put on another mask. It was what the the arts did whenever you had one actor that played multiple parts. He would be a hypocrite because he would take off that mask and put on another mask, right? That is what Southern cultural Christianity is as a T. I got my church mask. I got my golf mask. I got my my hanging out with the friends mask. I got my gossiping with my ladies mask. Y'all, what ends up happening is we end up building a reputation that's built on a public persona, and that's not good. Because people can see right through that, especially young people. They can see right through that. When our character outpaces our platform, good things happen. If we want to recapture our power, we need to be known as people who actually practice what we preach. Not people who talk a big game, but we look like everybody else. There should be something strangely different about the way that we live and the decisions that we make. It should not make sense to people. People should notice that we value certain things with our time and our money, that we, we don't watch the same things. You know, do you know how much of an outsider I was when everybody was talking about Game of Thrones? They're like, what'd you think about it? I was like, man, I didn't watch it. Like, you didn't? Like, no, man. Like, I wanted to, but I heard what's there and I'm not going there. And it's strange. And people don't know what to do with that. And yet we have to be strangely different. When your marriage looks different, and you love your wife, and you talk about your wife or your husband with affection, man, that stuff matters. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. As the apostles' message matched their reputation, people came to faith. Like, don't miss the fact, too, that this was happening under intense persecution. Literally, people were dropping dead in the church. Rome was persecuting the church. The Sadducees didn't want to see it happen. Like, nothing was going their way. And it was almost as if, it was almost as if through that, as the apostles were digging into who God made them to be, God was multiplying them because as the dividing lines between culture and the church were really distinct, people were like, what's going on out here feels good, but it doesn't change my life. What's going on in there feels weird, and yet everybody has joy, and I don't know what they have, but I want it. It wasn't all butterflies and rainbows in there, but God was doing a great work. Y'all, people were coming to faith, and the gospel was unstoppable because their lives matched their message. Verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least the shadow might fall on some of them. The people who also gathered from, I'm sorry, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, if I'm honest with you, I don't really know what to do with that. That's, that's kind of a strange passage. Here's what I do know. People believed that this was a place of healing. And people were coming from cities and bringing their sick because they knew that this was a place of healing. Here's the point. When the church has a reputation for being a place of healing, people show up. You you see that, right? People from all over were bringing their sick because they were the type of people and they had the type of reputation to where the gospel was the source of power. And people were just like, man, I don't know what's going on. The dude's shadow is healing people. Everywhere he goes, people are coming to faith and people's lives are changing. Is that what they think about when they think about you? Man, I don't, I don't really know what's going on in Dustin's life, but every time I get around him, my, my family's just better. Are we the type of people that when they look at us and they look at our family, they see healing? 
Like, do people ask strange questions about you? Like, how in the world do you have such godly kids? Right? They're patient. They're kind. Why does your marriage look so weird and awesome? Do people see the power of Jesus coursing through your life? That even when they get close to you, things start to change. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. You ever notice that religious people get really angry when miraculous things start happening? Now, they were more worried about their theology than the people's lives that were being changed. That's, they became the religious police. But notice this. The reason that they got really mad, and this is important, is because they were jealous. They were jealous the Sadducees, they were, they were the ruling class of the Jewish elites. If you didn't know this about them, the, what happened before Jesus resurrected from the dead, the Pharisees were the main attackers of the church. After Jesus rose from the dead, the Sadducees became the main attackers of the church. The Sadducees, if you want to hear the worst like pastor joke ever, didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. Hey, be honest with you, that's a great way of remembering that because it's important. But the reality is, is they became the religious liberals of the day. They sucked themselves up to Rome. And Rome, because Rome cared about power and authority, gave it to them because they were acquiescing their theology. And because of that, their job was to keep the order and they got to rule the temple. So, so that's your picture. What they're doing is they're cowering to Rome, they get power and authority, and they don't like what's going on because they're losing power and authority. They're jealous, and they know that there's a lot riding on this. See, when you are on top and control is your God, you naturally don't like when another new game comes into town and takes your control. But here's what you need to know about that. This is really important. Write this down. Opposition isn't failure. Some of you think that just because things aren't going your way, you're doing something wrong. Can I just tell you something I've learned? Life is not always up and to the right. I've done enough counseling now to tell you that sometimes I sit with people and they're like, I don't know why my kids are so bad. What did I do wrong? Here's the answer. Nothing. Sometimes it just doesn't go the way you think. Because life is complicated, and it's not just you put in the right inputs and you get the right outputs. Sometimes God's doing a work in you and through you, and, and, and if you're really following Jesus, there's going to be opposition. He told you that. So I just need you to know that opposition isn't failure. So they use, they use their authority, the Sadducees do, to arrest the apostles again. If you remember, they did this the first time whenever they healed the paralyzed guy, except for the first time, they, they arrested Peter and John. This time, they arrested all 12 of the apostles, including the new guy. Poor guy, Matthias, if you remember him, this joker gets pulled into the crowd too. And the craziest thing happens. An angel of the Lord, he comes in the middle of the night and he opens up the prison doors. Y'all got so many questions. Like, what the heck were the guards doing? What kind of angels are these? What, when did this happen? Why did it happen? Do angels have wings? Do they fly? If angels can open up prison doors, why can't they exterminate cats? Like, I don't, I'm trying, just trying to figure all this out. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and they put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Here's what we know about angels. Angels always show up to remind you to advance the mission. Notice what the angel said. Go back to the temple and go speak the words of life. Now, the words of life, maybe a better translation of life there is salvation. Basically, what he's saying is, go and preach the gospel again. In other words, I need you to go back into enemy territory and preach the gospel. The same gospel that got Jesus killed and the same gospel that got you into this mess. By a show of hands, who's shining out for that job? Right? I mean, like, don't desensitize the scripture. That's a big deal. I'd imagine that Matthias is like, bro, two weeks ago, I'm just a dude. Now, you want me to go back? They did. They did. They went back and did exactly what the angel told them to do because God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. You you get that. If God called you to it, he's going to see you through it. Now, Now, why did all this happen? Here's my theory, okay? This is important. Sadducees, it, it would have reminded them. Get a little nerdy. There, there's a um, literary term called adumbration. Adumbration means like whenever an event happens, it rocks something in your mind to think about a past event that actually had the same thing happen. What happened here is an angel of the Lord came in, the prison doors open, they walk out, the guards are still standing there, they don't know what's going on. A couple months earlier, something similar had happened. You remember the event? A guy gets killed, hung on a cross, they put him in a tomb, guards are standing there, they're holding out the door, he walks out, but the guards are still there. They don't know what's going on. The Sadducees should have felt in that moment of, oh my gosh, this feels eerily similar to something else that had just happened. Watch this. I think God's being gracious. I think God is telling even his worst enemies, there's still grace for you. See, I don't know what you've done. But I'd be willing to bet you've never killed a guy, much less the savior of the world. And if you aren't that bad, you're not too bad for the gospel. I think that that's what he's telling these guys. Hey, I know. I know that you think that you are the ruling class. Number one, you have no authority. You think you do, but you don't. And number two, there's still time. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, At the foot of the cross, there's still time for you to come back home. I think that's the message. I think God is looking at them, telling them, just come home. You need to know if there's breath in your lungs, God's not done with you yet. So the apostles, they go back to the temple, they start preaching the gospel. Well, the, the Sadducees, they, they had a good night's sleep the night before. They don't know what's going on. They, they, they wake up the next morning, and they're like, hey, well, let's go summon the apostles to come back so that we can give them a stern talking to and make them go back home. Well, they, they send somebody to go get the, the, get the apostles, and, and I can only imagine how this conversation went, right? The guy's like, hey, man, I got three good pieces of news and one bad piece of news. Which one would you want first? Sadducees are like, well, give us the good news. Well, okay, here's the good news. One, we found the prison was still there. Hey, the doors were still closed, and the guards were still out of tension. Sadducees are like, that's great news. What's the bad news? Well, the apostles, they just, they're not there. Bad day, right? Now, now when the high priest had come, And those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. 
But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and they reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened the door, we found nobody inside. I mean, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine the next guy's like, oh, I know where they're at. They're, they're at the temple. Just saw them. Oh, they're, they're not doing anything bad. They're just, you know, preaching the gospel. The one that talks about you killing the guy. You know that guy. Verse 24, and when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Like, what the heck? Right? And they're wondering what would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Now, at this point, these dudes are pretty ticked off. You know what I mean? Like ticked off, like you're standing with your kids in public and you're like, don't do that. And your kid's like, stop me. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Come on. Come on. Right, and you just want to, you know what I mean? And you can't, and they're, they're calling you out in public, like that kind of disgraceful. Like, if you do that again, like, okay. Like, that's what's going on here. You know, the apostles do what they're told not to do, and they do it in the temple in front of all the people that knew that they were told not to do it. It makes a mockery out of them. Now watch this, this is subtle. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers he went and he brought them in. Here it is, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. All the tides are shifting. You see it? Let me ask you, how did the apostles win the affection of the people? Did they do it by force and by power? No. Matter of fact, these guys had no power in society. They were, the, they were the dummies of society. They had, no, they had no ability to enforce the law at all. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees had all the power and all the law on their side. The apostles won the day, and they won the people through their boldness and their belief of the gospel. Their, their, their power was the foolishness of this world. Their boldness seemed crazy to everyone around them. Yet they were willing to defy the very people who had the ability to kill them because because they knew the gospel was real. Like, I don't know about you, but whenever I meet somebody who strangely doesn't give any, doesn't give two rips what I think about them because they're so confident in who God had made them to be, there's something powerful about that. It's attractive to be around people who believe that, that their life is so secure in Jesus that they are willing to do anything in the world to honor him. I'm convinced that the world needs more people like this. People who are willing to leverage their reputation and their power so that they can serve. By the way, in their effort, the apostles' effort to lay down their, their reputation, they actually gained a reputation. So the Sadducees, right, they do the whole dog and pony show again. They bring them back in. They warn them again. Look at what he says. But here's what's really, really fascinating. I need you to take note of this. They won't even say Jesus' name. Look at it. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. See it? You know what's interesting? Look at these words. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You know why that's a really interesting statement? Two months prior, they were inviting this man's blood to be upon them. You remember it? Matthew chapter 27. Let me read it to you. Here's what it says. There it is. 
Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Well, Pilate said to them, then what shall we do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was about to begin, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And listen to what they said. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Now they're like, hey, you're trying to put this man's blood upon us. No, you asked for it. (laughs) They're in the same place. If you've ever noticed this, listen to me. This is... This is so profound. It's not profound because I said it. It's profound because it's true. Nobody's offended by God. Nobody. They're like, hey, look, the miracle stuff, it's really awesome. You guys keep doing that. People love a good miracle. Just can you like leave the Jesus part out of that? You can talk about God all day long and nobody's offended. Give a couple religious platitudes in there and you're good to go. The moment you talk about Jesus, people are going to get offended. Why? Well, because Jesus made some pretty bold statements. Don't, don't, don't get it twisted. Christianity is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, right? If there were any other way to heaven other than Jesus, listen to me, Jesus's death would be completely unnecessary. But you also need to know this, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity on the planet, and that also made them mad. Jesus, yes, is the only way, But the thing that offended the religious people is that he is the same way for everybody. Which means this, is that at the foot of the cross, it is level. Your religious platitudes don't make you any better than the next guy. How many of you are offended by this? I'm telling you, you can check your religion at the door whenever I tell you that the guy on death row has the same way to heaven as you do. The blood of the cross. That's it. The guy who does the most egregious crimes on the planet, if he submits himself to the blood of the cross, gets in just like you. That's offensive. And people struggle with that. You may struggle with that. But what you probably don't understand is that if it wasn't for Jesus, none of us were getting in. And that he loved you so much that he would die for you. See, Jesus says, anybody can come to me. Anybody. And that flattens the curve. And that makes people who care about power and hierarchies, really, really mad. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can come to Jesus. So they question them, they threaten them, and listen to what the apostles say. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Can I just pause here for just a second and give you something? This is important. God gave governments, and God gave laws for you to obey those laws. Okay? Really simple. Government makes laws. You should obey those laws. However, when government's laws contradict God's laws, you always go with God's laws. I get this all the time. You know, we'll go to countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel, and people will be like, hey, India, for example, will make you sign a document saying you won't preach the gospel. It's like, should I lie to them? Absolutely. All day long. People are like, isn't lying a sin? I'm like, go read Exodus chapter 1. 
Exodus chapter 1, the, the Hebrew midwives are told by Pharaoh, which was the law of the land, to kill all the firstborn children because he was creating a genocide of the Jewish people. They lie to him. They hide the firstborn children. And God praises them for doing the right thing. Like, that, that's simple stuff. It gets more complicated. You know, in the Christian life, things are complicated. Like, what do I do about immigration? Because God has no borders, but our country does. So what do I do with that? That's a tough question. And you need to wrestle with that question. And I don't have the right answers for you. I have my answers, but you need to understand that don't be culturally motivated. If God's word gives you conviction of something and, and God's government is in direct contradiction with God's word, like we, we care for babies and we care about life. And we don't, I don't really care what God's word says. We care for life. And we're going to have that conviction of how we can live within this pluralistic society while holding on to God's law and holding on to the law of our land and doing both of those to the best of our ability. Here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to know. That takes a lot of wisdom, and it's not easy. But when God's word and then the law contradict, you go with God. That's what they're telling them. Hey, bro, I don't know what to tell you. You want us to stop preaching the gospel? That's great. We're not going to because God's word is pretty clear that we're going to keep doing that. Verse 30. The God of our fathers, listen to what they do. They, they preach the gospel to these guys. The apostles are like, haven't we already gone over this, man? You're trying to tell us to stop. We're not going to listen to you, but we do got a message for you too. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and a savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You know, these dudes are bold. They said the God of our fathers. They're connecting the Hebrew God of the Old Testament to Jesus. And they're saying, and by the way, you killed the man. That's not going to go over very well. Right? But here's the best part. The best part is like, and by the way, he came to give repentance of sins of which you can receive. Y'all, the apostles are not excluding the Sadducees from grace. They are inviting them into the same salvation that they received. Yeah, they're saying that anyone who obeys God can have the same spirit of God living inside of them. Do you get that? The spirit of God isn't for a special group of the elite. It's for anybody. Now, here's what I know. The gospel is a great divider. The gospel will either bring you to repentance or it'll bring you to revenge. It's never neutral. Never neutral. You're either going to come face to face with Jesus in repentance or you're going to get mad in revenge. And that's what they do. They get really, really angry right here. They get enraged. And they want to kill the apostles. But this, this guy, this guy pops up. His name's Gamaliel. He, he's this wise old sage. He's a Pharisee, in the, and he's in the council of the Sanhedrin. Now, what's fascinating about that is you're going to learn that the apostle Paul, who is Saul, that you're going to get introduced to next week or the week after, who ends up killing Stephen and becomes the apostle, he is a rabbi, or, or he's a Talmudid, like we just talked about earlier, under Gamaliel, which means he would have been here listening to this exact statement. Well, Gamaliel, he stands up, and he, he says to them one of the most profound statements. He says, hey, so in the present case, talking about the apostles, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But is it, if it is of God, you will not only not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And then he gives two examples. 
one of which we have a lot of extra biblical evidence about and one of which we know nothing about. One, one guy's name is uh, Theudas. We don't know a whole lot about Theudas. The other guy is, is a guy named Judas, the Galilean. And what we know is around 86 or 7, he, he created a tax revolt in, in the Roman Empire and he created a sect of people called the Zealots. Now what's fascinating about Judas the Galilean is one of his followers was a guy named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot became one of the apostles, or the disciples of Jesus. It's just fascinating how all this works, so you can see history there. Well, Theudas and Judas both create these revolts, and the Roman Empire squashes both of them, kills them, and their people scatter, which happened like with Simon the Zealot. He scatters away. See, what, what Gamaliel was telling them was, he's saying, hey, the Romans, they're not against Christianity. They don't care about Christianity. They're, they're just pluralistic, and they, don't, they want to keep the peace. They don't like your exclusivity. They just want everybody to play along. So whenever these uprisings happen, trust me, Rome's going to take care of it. They killed those guys. They killed Theudas. They killed Judas, and they killed Jesus. Well, if history proves itself right, what's going to end up happening with this movement? It's the same thing that happened with Theudas and Judas. It's going to go away. So just leave the guys alone and let Rome do their thing. Well, guess what? It hasn't happened. Huh, this movement started out with 11 guys in an upper room in Jerusalem, and it spread to thousands of people within a couple months. And 100 years later, the entire Roman Empire is going to have churches. Today, the city of Rome has more crosses than any other city in the entire world, and the Roman Empire is gone, and yet Rome is considered to be the epicenter of Christianity. It's like, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Why don't you take Gamaliel's advice? Why don't you take Christianity on its merits and ask the question, if it's real, it will survive. Here's what I know is God's going to build his church, and he has been building his church, and stop taking Christianity on the merits of some hypocrite that you don't trust, because we all have that guy. And ask yourself the question, did Jesus really raise from the dead, and has this movement stopped? And the answer to that is no. Here's another way I'd say it. If you get yourself between a hammer and a nail, it's going to hurt. Don't get yourself in between God and his church. He's going to build his church, and the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to get hurt. Well, the Sadducees, they take Gamaliel's advice, and they let the apostles go, but they decide that they're going to beat him first. Because, I mean, like who doesn't like a good beating? Verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can I just tell you that when they got beat, it wasn't just like a couple slap arounds? No, the Jews would beat them so badly, they called it 40 lashes less one with a cat of nine tails. Think the passion of the Christ, the movie, that most people didn't survive it. They got the beat out of them. And they left rejoicing. What in the world makes them so different? Yeah, I told you I'm going to be preaching in Kuala Lumpur next week, and I'm doing the the Exodus, the Passover. And, you know, once you get past the Passover, you get this long section of the Exodus story that nobody likes because it's boring. It has all these details. And, and, And what you have to understand about those details is that the nation of Israel had just spent 400 years in exile, okay, which means that they had lost their culture. And God was telling them, hey, Christians are supposed to have a distinctly different culture. And when you have a distinctly different culture, something comes, becomes attractive to you. Listen, these apostles had a distinctly different culture. And people begin to ask questions. And what God is telling you is, you need to have that too. 
I know we live in a strangely quasi-Christian culture and that makes it a little challenging, but let me just tell you, like being a husband of one wife and loving your kids and being committed to your family and having integrity, those are distinctly different cultures that are really, really attractive. And people are going to look at you and they're going to say, why do you do what you do? And you're going to say, because the Lord Jesus loved me so much that he laid down my, his life for me and that changed everything and I want to follow him. And people are going to look at that and they're going to be like, yes, but you could be making a whole lot more money doing something else. Or you could have a whole lot easier life and you're going to leave there rejoicing because you were able to suffer for his name. And people are going to come to faith. What we need is a distinctly different culture. We need to live distinctly different. And then what will happen is people will come to faith. So they leave with scars on their back, wounds on them, and they preach, and they preach, and they preach, and they preach. They were bold, and the rulers couldn't figure out what to do with them. Y'all, here's what I think. I think that we live in the easiest time in human history, and we've done it at the expense of our boldness. And I think because we've done it at the expense of our boldness, we lose power. It's like our kids, right? Like we bubble wrapped our kids and we've helicopter parented them and we wonder why everybody thinks they're snowflakes and nothing ever happens. You know, when I was growing up, like if I jumped on the trampoline in my backyard, you might lose a limb. You know what I'm saying? Like it was a death trap. I fall off that thing the wrong way. I'm getting pinched in between it. I break a leg. Now in my backyard, if my kids jump on the trampoline, they couldn't get hurt if they tried. Like, it's like they're in this blob. What if, what if the reason that we feel like as a culture things are so challenging and, and depression is so high and suicide rate, all the stuff is there, is because we have bubble wrapped ourselves from anything that might take any boldness. And we, it's not that fear isn't there, but we're afraid to even step into the moment. What if we have a bubble wrapped Christianity? And the reason why we're not experiencing the type of miracles that they experienced was because, honestly, we've never put ourselves out there to be bold enough to do it. Here's how I want to land the plane today is I want to just tell you real practically a couple things that we need to be bold about that will change the way that society looks at us. And, I, and I'm going to be quick here because I know I've gone long. Number one is this. We need to be bold about confessing our sin. <laughs> yeah, I know it's scary. It's scary to confess your sin, but I'm telling you, if you can get around a group of people that checks their pretense at the door because they recognize that they're sinners too, and you can have the freedom to confess what's really going on in your life, that's where you actually overcome. And what ends up happening is you become the type of person that Jesus has called you to be. And there's something strangely beautiful about being in a community where you can be fully known and fully loved and fully accepted no matter what you've done. So let me just tell you really quickly, if somebody confesses their sin to you, you need to not judge it because you're, you're not so good yourself. And you need to just start with that reality. Here's the next one. We need to choose to live in biblical community. And I'm not just talking about community. You can find community anywhere. You can find it at a CrossFit box. You can find it at a baseball field. 
But you can't find biblical community at those places because biblical community does not live on the surface. It sacrifices for one another. It holds one another accountable. It walks through conflict and chooses to make each other more like Jesus. Like try that on and see if it doesn't change you and see if people don't notice. The bold faith that has conviction to share the gospel and to live in community, that stuff changes the people around you. And so that would be the last one. So we need to confess sin, live in community, and share the gospel. And here's what I mean. I don't mean like with a bullhorn standing on the street being that guy. Nobody likes that guy, and that guy's not effective. What I mean is intersecting your life with the things you're already doing and doing it with gospel intentionality. I mean making your life and reality the same so everywhere you go, you are a light to the world in what you're doing. And and listen, you know what the dumbest quote ever is? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's necessary. Like it literally, see, she believes it. It literally means, like, speak it in those situations where you have the ability to. So I want to just give you one quick, easy way to do that. At work this week, ask somebody, hey, what'd you do this weekend? They're going to tell you. Then guess what they're going to do? Hey, Nolan, what'd you do this weekend? Ah, great question. Well, I did this, this, and this, and my family went to church together. Oh, that's strange. Like, you see how you can kind of get in these conversations pretty easily if you're just intentional about it? But we need to be bold enough to do it. And when we are, I believe things will change. The thing that made the early church so different was its boldness. Because it wasn't just an event they attended. It was a community they belonged to. Because they believed the message. And because they believed the message, it became their life. If you can go back really quickly, I want to end by landing on that very first slide. Here's what the church is. Nope, the very, very first slide. I didn't prompt them for this. The church isn't an institution. The church is a movement built around a message that changed the world. When we believe that, when we live like that, when we embrace that, the world will change. We live at the precipice of the most important time in our history where culture is going this way and the church is going this way, which creates a dividing line in the middle to where we can actually speak back into it with our lives, if we will. For so long, it's been so muddied and so blurred that you didn't know who was in and who was out. You do now. It's probably going to cost you something to be in this thing now. But this thing has been changing lives for 2,000 years. And it will for the next 2,000, if you will just embrace it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that Acts 5, every day in the temples and from house to house, they did not cease to preach and teach that Christ was Jesus. Thank you that these brothers were bold enough in the midst of opposition in their community to not stop teaching, to not stop telling people about the hope that they have in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough that you put on flesh and you died for us. Thank you that your word is true, that at the foot of the cross, anybody can come. Father, I don't know what people in this room are carrying with them today, but I do know that you love them. 
that you prove their, your love by the cross and your power over their lives by the resurrection and that you're calling them home. Father, would you give us boldness? Would you pour out your spirit on us? Would you make us more like you so that we can be the, the fragrant aroma that draws this world to you? Lord, we need you. I pray for freedom and grace in all of our lives. And Jesus, I pray that you would be as real to us as you were to the apostles. In Jesus' name, amen.